80 years ago, Orange County, California was a very different place than it is today. There were 130,000 people living here then compared to more than 3 million people living here now. Orange County was primarily a farming region, and one of those farms in the rural community of Westminster was where the lives of the Munamitsu family and the Mendez family converged. The stories of these two families, the challenges they faced, the way they supported each other, and the court case that changed California and U.S. history are the focus of a book called The Kindness of Color. In this episode of Education for Love and Wisdom, we interview the author of that book, Janice Munamitsu. Janice's family survived incarceration during World War II, and she is helping us today to teach the facts of history in such a way that we learn to collaborate with love and wisdom in order to overcome fear, anger, and injustice. Welcome to Education for Love and Wisdom. My name is Jeff Hittenberger, and I serve as director of the Graduate Education Program at Vanguard University of Southern California. During the past few years, I've seen lots of fear and anger dominate conversations about American education. But I've also seen lots of love and wisdom from students, teachers, families, and community members. That's what we'll concentrate on in this podcast. Thank you for joining us. Janice Munamitsu attended the University of Southern California and rose to executive leadership roles in Fortune 500 companies. She then turned her energies toward philanthropic and church ministry work, empowering people to share their resources for the benefit of others, a legacy of the generosity she inherited from her family. Well, I am delighted to welcome Janice Munamitsu to the Education for Love and Wisdom podcast. Janice, thank you so much for joining us to share a bit about your story and your family's journey. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Part of what brings us to the interview today is a book that you wrote called The Kindness of Color. And I'm wondering if you would start just by giving us a little of the history of your family um, going back to your grandparents' arrival in America, and then we'll kind of unpack the history in the in the generations since then. Uh, my grandparents, uh, both sets of my grandparents, came from Shik- Shikoku Island, um, and primarily this story is about my father's side. Um, my grandfather, Seima Munamitsu, came from Kochi, uh, from an agricultural background, and he came from Japan to America when he was 17 in 1916. And when he uh, arrived, he and his father worked on a ranch called Carson Ranch in the Torrance South Bay Carson area. And so they worked for as farm laborers. About five years later, he went back to Japan, married my grandmother, and they came back as newlyweds in 1921 and still worked on the Carson Ranch in that area. My father was born in Torrance. And he was the first U.S. American citizen in our family. And subsequently, my grandfather had raised enough money to be able to come and lease his own farm in Westminster. And he did that, came to Westminster around 1930. So we've been in Orange County a long time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, My dad grew up, went to Westminster 17th Street School. Uh, Then he went to Huntington Beach High School. Uh, So very much a local Orange County story and family. And um, that's kind of the story up until 19, um, up until World War II. 
And can you tell me a little about what were some of those uh, restrictive laws and uh, and barriers that they faced even pre-World War II? My grandfather um, came to lease land in Westminster and when he leased it from an elderly woman. And so this farm had was 40 acres. It had a farmhouse, a barn, and four workers' cottages, and probably a few other smaller, you know, equipment shacks and stuff like that. But when he leased it, um, there was no way he, he could have bought it because of uh, the land laws that restricted uh, non-U.S. citizens from buying the land. So that was fine. He leased it. But when this woman died, she gave my father and my grandfather first right of refusal to own the land. The problem is, is my grandfather couldn't own it, and my father was underage. He was probably only about 10 years old, actually. So they got sought counsel. My dad also, when he, uh, as a young boy, he would go to the bank with my grandfather and essentially translate English to Japanese and Japanese to English. Um, so in that way, he learned a lot about banking just from being the, the little boy translator. And um, his, I call him a bank mentor, but his mentor, Mr. Uh, Frank Monroe, was the manager at the bank. And so Frank Monroe gave him a lot of good advice um, on how to do business and essentially mentored my dad um, in banking and business. And that led to trying to find a solution of how we have the opportunity to buy land, but we legally cannot own it because my dad is underage and my grandfather wasn't a citizen. So what they did is a family friend who is Hawaiian-born, a second-generation Nisei, but was probably about 10 years older than my dad, he became my dad's guardian. And so my father could legally own that land. So my father's probably one of the few people who had a mother, father, and a guardian. <laughs> uh, but the guardian was really for this land exchange, this buying this land. And so really the the one of the first reasons um, I call this book The Kindness of Color is this woman, this Caucasian white woman, gave our family an opportunity to own land, even though the law of the land was against that. Um, but she liked my grandfather. She saw how hard they worked. She liked how they kept up and were you know, faithful to their payments. And so she gave them an opportunity. So that's one of the first kindnesses that I note in our story. Also, Mr. Matt Frank Monroe, I mean, he, I, I mean, today, could you imagine like a little eight-year-old boy going into a bank and the banker taking any time to, you know, help him or maybe to help him. But um, I mean, Mr. Monroe was essentially my dad's um, mentor for the rest of his life. Hmm. So in spite of these restrictive laws, um, and in some cases discriminatory based on um, the or origins of these immigrant families, um, your family found a way in partnership with other people in the community to lay foundations for their lives in, in the United States. Your dad being um, born in the U.S., had American citizenship, felt, I'm sure, very much American and, and uh, attended American schools. And then World War II comes. What happens mm -hmm. then? My dad remembers uh, working in the field. They were harvesting cabbage in the winter. And uh, someone drove by, some men drove by and yelled really vicious racial slurs um, at him. And he was out there with other 
his workers, other Mexican workers. And it was kind of confusing because that didn't happen very often. And it was just the tone and I think the kind of viciousness of uh, their their words that really struck him. So they were working, they went in for lunch, and that's when one of the workers turned on the radio and heard that Pearl Harbor had been bombed by Japan. So that made now put this all into context because these racial slurs were coming from these men at my dad because he was Japanese, even though at that time he had never been to Japan. Uh, truly, you know, fully an American-raised um, citizen, he spoke Japanese so he could communicate with his parents. But that was probably really the extent of his connection to Japan was a language. So that's how my father um, found out about it. And immediately, you know, what's next? Um, at this time, now he was 20. He was attending Fullerton College, junior college, and uh, working full-time on the farm. So this put basically all Japanese Americans now in a very weird predicament because they look like the enemy, even though they had really, except for maybe uh, relatives in Japan, they had no political, military, or uh, any kind of, you know, formal alliance to Japan. Uh, it was just really through bloodline and how they looked. And so immediately suspicion was cast on the Japanese American uh, community. And what happened next for your family? So next, after uh, December 7th of 41, the next major occurrence, um, I'm sure there was a lot of um, concern and anxiety and what's going to happen next. Uh, a lot of talk about what the Japanese Americans, what, you know, suspicion around them. And there were some Japanese Americans who lived in strategic areas like near harbors um, or near um, like Terminal Island that were removed, forcibly removed from their homes, like literally right after Pearl Harbor. So my grandfather and dad would have seen all this happening and wondering like, when is this going to happen to us? Well, on February um, 19th of 1942, President Roosevelt executes Executive Order 9066. Uh, which basically then says all Japanese Americans along the West Coast of and that would be all of California, Oregon, and Washington will be uh, evacuated. But that's not quite the right word. We evacuate now when you have a flood and you need to rescue people out of that. Uh, or when there's a fire, you evacuate. But the word evacuation is really should have been forced removal. They basically forced all the Japanese to register to then uh, leave their homes, their businesses, leave college if you were enrolled at any of the colleges here you had to leave. So there was no, there were no exceptions, essentially. Um, and so they started to prepare for that. And in some cases for our family, my father and Mr. Monroe, and he sought other counsel of what to do with the, the farm that he had owned and now worked on since, you know, he was 10 years old. And Mr. Monroe gave him the advice to let's try to lease the farm. Uh, they weren't able to lease it immediately, but essentially Mr. Monroe gave him the idea, gave him the uh, kind of the know-how of how to do this. How could we legally do this? And so the next big question was how do, who was going to lease a farm? And that's where Mr. Monroe also played another role. And he had a client in Gonzalo Mendez uh, who owned a cantina in Santa Ana. And Gonzalo's dream was always to farm. 
and to be the boss of a farm. He, too, as a young person, had worked as a farm laborer, but he had always wanted to be the boss of a farm. So Mr. Monroe goes to Gonzalo, says, Gonzalo, here's your chance. Um, And this is a ready-made farm. The land was there, the tractors were there, all the tools and hand equipment was there, the house was there. I mean, they could just move in to this, quote-unquote, you know, fully uh, equipped farm. So that's what they did. They signed a lease, and Gonzalo moved to the farm. So he moved from Santa Ana to Westminster, and in that move of less than probably 10 miles, you know, he leased his house, he moved his family, um, and then the next school year, what happens is he goes, um, his children prepare to go to school for the first day of school to enroll, and they're denied enrollment because of the color of their skin and their last name. Uh, they w- were not able to go to Westminster School like my aunts and uh, uncle and father did. They were told that they could only go to uh, Hoover School, which was the Mexican school, and not an academic focus school at all. Mm. So these circumstances of history cause your family's path to cross the path of the Mendez family. And your family now has been removed, forcibly removed from Southern California and, and essentially incarcerated. Um, and, and the Mendez family has moved to Westminster, has taken up the farming of your, your family's land, and they're being denied access to the so-called white school um, and being uh, forced to attend the so-called Mexican school. So tell me more about uh, eventually your families will come back together. Mm-hmm. But for this period of, of several years, your family's on uh, an incarceration camp while the Mendezes are on your farm in Westminster. Tell me a little bit about what that was like for your family um, during those years of incarceration. Well, after uh, February 1942, when the executive order was signed, our family was slated to move uh, to Poston, Arizona, which is right on the other side of the Colorado River, California-Arizona border. It actually is on Native American land. Native American reservation. And um, at the time that that was designated by the U.S. government, the Native American uh, tribal leaders said, we don't want any part of this. We don't want them on our land. And it wasn't against the Japanese. They didn't want anyone incarcerated (laughs) on their land. It was um, probably better than any other group, people group in America, they know what it's like to be taken from their own land. And so they didn't want any part of this. But the government overruled them. And so Post in Arizona camp was right in the middle of this Native American reservation. My family in in May, they were slated to leave, but about three or four days before the whole family was to leave, my grandfather was arrested by the FBI because he was suspected of ties to Japan, of being a spy, which it's pretty funny if you knew my grandfather, because there's no way he could be a spy. <laughs> but anyway, that's separate. Um, and there was other Japanese-American um, uh, farmers and business people in the central Orange County area who were arrested at that same time. Uh, this was the start of basically almost a two and just under two and a half year separation from my grandmother and the rest of the family. He was taken uh 
ultimately to New Mexico, to a de- uh, Department of Justice labor camp in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Lordsburg, New Mexico. And there's a whole story about that, too, because you have a bunch of first-generation Japanese men who don't speak English well, or maybe they do enough for daily business. But now we're talking about legal issues. We're talking about uh, citizenship. And so I always wonder, like, how much did they did the government really try to explain to them? And, of course, they're going to be very suspicious. Like, what do we say? What's going to be misinterpreted, right? There's a lot of cultural context and misinterpretation issues, potentially. But anyway, uh, those men were held separated from their families and probably anywhere from two to two and a half years. But my grandfather was gone for just under two and a half years. The rest of the family was taken to Poston. There's lots of different stories around that, but... um, they left without my grandfather, and they went to Poston, um, and they were there for about two and a half years. So you've got the the scorching heat of the Arizona desert, and then the freezing cold of the winter, and the dust, and the circumstances of separation. Um, so your family is experiencing this uh, really difficult set of circumstances. And meanwhile, back in Westminster, what's happening with the Mendez family? Well, Sylvia would say, Sylvia Mendez was the oldest um, daughter, and she has two brothers, Gonzalo Jr. and Jerome. So those three children uh, would say when they moved to the farm, they were, this was great. They had all this place to run and play and met new friends from the neighborhood, and everyone played together. Uh, they could dig in the dirt and build build their own swimming pool, you know, uh, which was really dig a ditch and put water in it. Um, but they had a lot of freedom. So uh, Sylvia remembers being there at her birthday. So her birthday's in June. So they go through the whole summer, have a great summer on the farm. Parents are working hard to um, manage the farm. It had asparagus at the time. And um, then they go to enroll in school in September, and that's when they're denied. So this whole idea of, you know, this is going to be great now turns into another kind of racism um, against the children. Um, it's interesting to note, and um, in my book, I go into this in more, far more detail, but Gonzalo's sister and her family had also moved to come live with them and work in the farm because they thought, how great for our families to grow up together. The cousins can grow up together. This is going to be great. Well, she had married a man who was uh, much lighter skin, and his last name was Vidari. And it didn't sound as Mexican as Mendez. And so when they went to enroll in school, her children were allowed to go to Westminster School, even though they culturally and by heritage, they're Mexican. And Sylvia and her her two brothers could not because they were much darker skin and their last name was Mendez. So just, um, just based on those very ridiculous uh, judgments by the person at the enrollment desk at Westminster School, this started this huge issue of there is no equal rights. And these the Mendez children are all citizens, even though their parents were immigrants. They're, they were citizens, born citizens here. And so this goes to um, start to highlight the differences in justice and equality for citizens of color. Well, it's it's such a, a powerful story because I think a lot of people, um, including those living in Orange County, don't realize how much segregation was a part of 
the California historical experience. Um, we tend to identify that with the South and, um, and, and Jim Crow and so on. But segregation was very much a fact of life right here in Orange County, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And not only in Orange County, I mean, I think all in, the, in California and the Southwest. So it wasn't exclusive. What Mendez did was for all citizens, because it said if you're a U.S.-born citizen, you should have, based on the 14th Amendment, equal opportunity and equal rights. Um, as the other citizens. So the Mendez family and other families in Orange County band together and challenge the discrimination that they're facing in the schools that uh, they win an initial uh, decision against the districts for discrimination. But this whole process and the appeals are still going on, aren't they? When World War II comes to an end and your family uh, makes their way back to Westminster. Tell tell me about that reunion, if you will, or the the time in which those families come together at the farm. In ni- 1944-1945, there's indications World War II is coming to an end. Um, and I say that because I, I wasn't there, but when the whole world is at war, it's a little bit hard to tell when is this really going to end and what's going to happen next. So it's not as cut and dry as you could read in a history book after the fact, right? But uh, they knew it was coming to an end. Mr. Mendez and uh, along with the Ramirez, uh, Estrada, Guzman families, and the Palomino families, they were still in the midst of this court case. So the court case gets appealed, it gets extended. And so now we've got our family coming back to the farm. Mr. Mendez in the midst of this appeal process and he's living in the house. (laughs) So he's living in the farmhouse. So my dad and uh, Mr. Mendez, the lease that was signed um, in 1944, 45, um, that one states that if our family comes back, if the Munamitsis come back to the farm, they will be uh, given quarters in one of those four workers' cottages. They could have the cottages. And Mr. Mendez and his family could stay on the farm and continue uh, living in the farmhouse. And then my father and grandfather, along with, I think, a lot of other family friends, ended up working for Mr. Mendez. So my dad's tax return for that year shows lease payment from Mr. Gonzalo Mendez, as well as uh, daily wages from Gonzalo Mendez. So it's one of those trading places kind of stories. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that Sylvia has said about that, the importance of this um, certainly was at least our family could come back to the farm and very, very grateful that we had a home to come back to, which many Japanese families did not. Um, our case is maybe one of the best possible outcome cases. Some people lease their land, but they didn't have the law on their side, and some of those people who leased it said, oh, no, no, we're not giving it back. So we really did have one of the best-case scenarios in this collaboration with Mr. Mendez. But what's interesting is what Sylvia also said, and what's key to this is Gonzalo was using the profits from the asparagus farm to fund the case, and that's why Mendez is the lead name in this Mendez et al. uh, case. And so he had not really saved up enough money to go then and start back another restaurant or start another business venture. He was quite an entrepreneur. So that also 
uh, my dad said that Mr. Mendez could have the profits from that year's crop, and that allowed him to then move on and start his next business. So they were together on the farm for about a year. It was like August of 1945 to um, the end of July of 1946. So this partnership built between your family and the Mendez family was really instrumental both in saving the farm for your family and in supporting the Mendez family in bringing this case that ultimately had a huge impact in California education. The decision on behalf of the families uh, requiring the districts to integrate their schools is finally upheld by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in 1947. And then in that same year, the California state legislature passes a law outlawing school segregation across the entire state, signed by Governor Earl Warren, who then goes on to become um, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, authors the Brown versus Board of Education decision seven years later. So it's a case that has this extraordinary influence. Could you talk a little bit about this issue that has come up frequently in school conversations in recent years about how to teach difficult history? Um, there are people who say, well, we, we shouldn't talk too much about issues like the incarceration of Japanese Americans um, during World War II or the discrimination and segregation of schools such as the Mendez story because it'll make it'll further divide people. How do you respond to people who express those kind of concerns? I have seen um, a lot of interest. I get emails almost at least a couple every week, sometimes once a day, uh, of people saying, I never knew this. We should all know this. Everybody should know this story. And so I think there's a lot of people out there who want the truth. Because if we don't know the truth, history will repeat itself and injustice will continue. And I think one thing I'm noticing is people ask me why I don't have more bitterness or resentment. And I'm like, you know, I'm telling a story of what happened to my family. This did not occur to me. I did not sit in an incarceration camp behind barbed wire for two and a half years. Somehow, and I, I want to say hard work and just a lot of gratitude uh, on my family's behalf, they were grateful to get home. They were grateful to have a place for home. My grandfather was grateful to be able to have people come and stay when they had no place to stay. And so I think our family chose to be grateful for what we had. And we did have, I think, one of the better outcomes because we did have a home to come home to. And the Mendez family were very trustworthy to the lease. Um, and so I think gratitude really helped our family say, wow, we've got more and we can help others, uh, which they did in lots of different ways I'm still hearing about. Uh, but I think there is a yearning for truth. There's groups that I'm finding out there, uh, many historians, history teachers, who want to tell all of American history. And it's, it's really so we can learn. It's not to point fingers. I think ignorance is really um, very, very, uh, well, it's, it's sad, but it's also very bad in terms of what could happen when we don't know all of truth. Right. And um, but we use truth 
to improve the situation, not to divide. Well, I know that you are a person of faith, Janice, and and a follower of Christ. And could you talk a little bit from that perspective of how your faith shapes your own response to these kinds of historic injustices and the choices that you make for um, for your time and energy in the present? Yeah, that's kind of a work in progress, actually. I never started out to, um, I never thought I'd be an author. I never thought I'd be doing a podcast. But I feel like this story has been entrusted to me by God, quite honestly. I just have seen his hand uh, move. And I think he wants more stories out there of collaboration, of people treating people equally. Um, and as I go through this journey, People have read my book or they've heard the story and they'll say, you know, when my father was a new immigrant, this Italian man gave my dad a chance or this other family gave us a chance or they, you know, had us over for dinner and really helped us to understand the neighborhood and things like that. And so there's a lot of these stories like this out there. Not all of them led to desegregating schools, but there are many stories out there. And I think we need to change the narrative and show what kindness, even in the smallest way, can do. Well, Janice Munamitsu, thank you so much for the way you embody the love and wisdom we talk about in this podcast and and offer an alternative to the fear and anger that drives so much of the conversation about both education and history. Your, your book, Kindness of Color, tells a story about love and wisdom in the face of fear and anger and your calling to us to live out in the present ways of connecting with each other, living out kindness, working for collaboration to make things better is, uh, is something that I deeply appreciate. So thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing the story. Education for Love and Wisdom is produced by the Graduate Education Program at Vanguard University of Southern California. My name is Nathan Brace, and I serve as Program Coordinator. If you have thoughts to share or are interested in learning more about education programs at Vanguard University, email us at loveandwisdom at vanguard.edu. That's loveandwisdom, with no spaces, at vanguard.edu, and leave us a message. Special thanks to Bonnie Stahoviak, Trevor Van Winkle, and Janice Munamitsu for their contributions to this episode. See you next time on Education for Love and Wisdom.